All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Living Truth. If you're a new visitor, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, we just want to make you feel at home, and we're glad that you chose to worship with us today. Uh, we, we are starting Vacation Bible School. That's what VBS is. Uh, we use those uh, abbreviations, but Vacation Bible School starts tomorrow. It's one of the major outreaches of the church. In fact, I know we have at least 100 children already signed up, and so it's awesome. And one of the things that we had to do at our former location is we had to cap the number of kids that we could take because we simply just didn't have the room. Now we have the room, so if you have not signed up your kindergartner through sixth grade Please do that today. They will have a great week. It's the evenings of Monday through Friday of this next week. So please be praying. If you're not going to be involved in VBS, pray. Because many, many people say they made their first commitment to Christ at Vacation Bible School. And so it's, it's a really an awesome week. I want to talk about just a couple other things before we break into the message. Uh, one is that Charles Aliano, who's a dear brother in Christ... Uh, we've spent a lot of time in Bible studies and uh, just getting to know each other as brothers in Jesus went home to be with the Lord last night. Uh, he was a vital part of our Thursday morning uh, men's breakfast at Farmer Boys and very faithful. In fact, it was just a few weeks back that I sat with him in Bible study um, at Farmer Boys. We're going through the, uh, the book of Exodus right now and Charles always faithful to give great input. I know he loved the Lord, and he wanted to, I had a chance to see him when he was getting ready to go home, and he wanted to tell, he wanted me to tell you that he loved you. Uh, he especially wanted to pass along his love to the brothers that have spent the time in Bible study with him. I know many of you also spent time with him at the Saturday morning men's breakfast, so he's out of pain now. Um, he had been fighting prostate cancer for a while, but congestive heart failure is what happened to him, and he wasn't feeling good at the Bible study, and he was having trouble um, digesting food, and we know he was getting many, um, you know, he was trying to go to the doctor and figure out what was going on, but anyway, he did go home to be with the Lord. His wife is Kathy, so please keep them in prayer, if you would, uh, in the coming weeks and months. I also do want to address uh, what's happening in our nation. Uh, now the latest uh, episode in Dallas with the killing of the officers and a lot of tension. We know that the officers aren't the only, one that have, only ones that have died. There's been other deaths. There's been other shootings. And there's a lot of tension in our nation right now. And all the pundits are trying to talk to us about what's going to solve it. And we, as those who are if you want to put it this way, religious leaders in this country, and we do have a voice, and we have various platforms that God has given us on radio and that kind of thing. We keep saying what the answer is. I don't know that most people are listening, but the answer is going to be when we realize all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. We are bent to go our own way. And when we decide that we're going to do it God's way again as a nation, we will heal. And that's going to really be the only answer to what ails us. So we need a great awakening in this country. We need a revival in the church. Those are not just words. And if we don't get there, I am very fearful of what's going to happen in this nation. Uh, I'm not afraid as I'm quaking in my boots. I know God's in control. I know that God is sovereign, but he tells nations, you can decide which way you want to go. So let's just be praying and let's, let's get the word out that there is a God who loves us and is still on the throne. Okay, this morning we are going to do a message as we move through the Gospel of Mark. We are going to do a message called Just Give Me the Crumbs. All right, Mark 7. We'll be looking at verses 24 through 30. If you'd locate that, let's pray. Father, we come before you on behalf of our nation. We cry out to you that you would move in a mighty way. But we know, Lord, that you know, judgment begins in the household of God, Peter says. We have to look at the church first. 
You know, we can sit there and look at the world and all that's wrong there, but Lord, let revival, let great awakening start with us. Let it start in my house. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As Shane prayed earlier, let us not be ashamed of the one who made us and saved us and called us. Lord God, we just pray that you would allow revival to happen in our hearts and may this day be a stepping stone toward that. I do want to lift up Kathy and the rest of the Aleano family. I pray that you'd bring them comfort and strength and healing as they deal with Charles going home to be with you. We thank you that Charles knew you. He knows you now better than he ever has. And thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for that hope beyond death. And as we now get into your word, may your word go deep into our hearts, changing, transforming us, making us more like your awesome son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I have to admit, with this slide, I told my wife this week what the message was, and I said, well, the message really has this image of a little puppy or a little dog under the table. And she began to go on the hunt for the right graphic, and so that's why we have what we have up there. And all God's people said, aww. I have to admit, I have a huge soft spot for dogs. In fact, I believe that most dogs are Christians. <laughs> Here's why I believe that. They will love you. They show the love that we're supposed to show to people every day, no matter what you do to them, no matter if you don't feed them on time. Always, man. <laughs> um, our, our dog at the time uh, right now is Sage. She's a little 30-pound shepherd mix. And uh, Sage loves crumbs. Can I get a witness? <laughs> and she knows I'm soft. And the rest of our family knows that I'm soft too. They know if I'm eating something, Sage will be well-fed. <laughs> Next to feeding my family, Sage is a close second. And I just kind of, and if I'm making something, she just... <laughs> Because she knows something good's coming. Hopeful eyes, anticipation. And I toss her things here and there. And she's so happy with the crumbs. Now, I doubt the salvation of most cats. I just want you to know. <laughs> if you're a cat person, I'm sorry. <laughs> On many levels, no. I've heard from cat people that there's some nice cats. I've never met one, but anyway. <laughs> I was talking with my neighbor one day, and my neighbor is a dog person, and he goes, you know, Michael, I've never met a dog I didn't like. And I would have to agree with that. Implied in that statement was I've met many people I didn't like. But <laughs> Anyway, just give me the crumbs. This is the message. This particular account falls between two important stories that we should take note of between the feeding of the 5,000 on Jewish land <clears throat> and the feeding of the 4,000, which will happen in a, in a message ahead of us that happened on Gentile land in the Decapolis. So those two stories are interesting relating to this story because after the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children, how many baskets did they pick up? 12. Remember I told you that the, the uh, message there on a different level, if you will, 12 represents Israel. They had 12 full baskets. Everybody who ate that day was fully satisfied. They, it was like Thanksgiving, right? They're all full. Everybody got as much as they wanted and they picked up 12 full baskets. And there's a message there. And what Jesus is saying is I'm the bread of life and I can take care of the 12. Not just the 12 apostles, it may be directly related to them, but also the nation represented by the 12 tribes. I am the answer. I am the bread of life which came down out of heaven. In a future message, Jesus will go to the Gentile side of the lake and feed the 4,000. And they'll pick up seven baskets. And there, the seven represents the seven nations that were on the other side of the river. We'll talk about that when we get there. And that represents the Gentile nations. And what God is saying through the two feedings is I can take care of Israel and I can take care of the Gentiles. 
If you're wondering what Gentile means, it simply means someone who's not Jewish. And so what these two feedings mean is that on a deeper level, God is saying, I can take care of your soul. I can feed the most uh, important part of you, the inner man. And so uh, one other thing, and, I, and I'm sure you've taken note of this already, this particular story also comes right on the heels of the debate about what makes a person clean or unclean. To the Jewish religious mind, especially the Pharisees and scribes, they felt it was ceremonial washings and what you ate and what you wear and the, and the like. But Jesus corrected that. He said it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man. It's what comes out of a man. And what comes out of a person, whether it be immoralities or slander or whatever you want to talk about, which is in that list that we looked, about, we looked at last time, if you look at Mark 7.20, it says, Mark 7.20, that which proceeds out of, the man, that, out of the man, that is what defiles the man. That's what makes him unclean. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, verse 22, Mark 7, wickedness as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person. It's interesting, in Matthew's account, it was Peter himself who asked Jesus to explain what he meant by that. And Peter will become a very focal point of the ongoing story of the gospel. In fact, it will be Peter who ends up going to the house of Cornelius. Uh, he's there in Joppa, and he receives the vision of the sheet of clean and unclean animals. And the whole vision is not just about food, it's about people. And Peter will go and he will break through a threshold and the gospel will go to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. And Peter will have to overcome his own biases. He will have to overcome his own prejudices because in Jewish thought, Gentile people, Gentile food, Gentile lands, and Gentile dirt made you unclean. That's what they thought. They thought if you traveled through certain lands and you got the dirt on your sandals, you had to get that dirt off of you. You had to go through a ceremonial cleansing. They felt they couldn't go into Gentile dwellings, eat Gentile food, spend time with Gentile people. And Jesus is about to do something very alarming to the Jewish mind. And it goes in concert with the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 and the issue of what makes one clean before God. He is about to leave the precincts or the area of Israel and go to a region called Tyre. If you pick up the story, Mark 7, 24. From there, after he had this debate with the religious leaders, Mark 7, 24, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. Now, I want to point out something to you that this, this particular story is also found in Matthew and it would be good if you just go ahead and hold a place in Matthew 15. Would you do that now? I just want to show you uh, just a sub point here, but Matthew 15, 21 uh, is the text, and it says these words. Just hold your place so you can kind of flip back and forth. It says, and if you're on a, a digital device, however you flip back and forth on that. Matthew 15, 21 says, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre, and Sidon or Sidon. That's Matthew 15, 21. This is the only time that we know of in Jesus' earthly ministry that he ever left the land of Israel. Ever. In his three, three and a half year ministry, it's the only time, the only record that he went outside of the country of Israel. And some of you are thinking with me and you go, ah, there was one other time that he left Israel. It was when he was just a child. He was taken to Egypt to be protected from Herod. We know that story. But I'm talking about in his earthly ministry as he did what he did, preaching and doing miracles. This is the only time he leaves. If you go back to Mark 7, 24, and the timing of this incident, of course, is very important. From there, he rose and he went to the region of Tyre, and he entered a house. Now here's the map 
um, of this particular area. And if you locate the Dead Sea that's in the south, and you go up, follow the map up to the north, you'll see the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum and so forth. And then just go to the Mediterranean coast. So it's this way, up above where the ship is, and you'll see the two areas of Sidon, Tyre, and Sidon. Tyre is about 20 miles northwest of Capernaum, where much of Jesus' ministry occurred. And if you just keep going up, going up north, you'll see Sidon or Sidon, and that was about 50 miles from Capernaum. So these were two, obviously from their positions on the Mediterranean Sea, two very major seaport cities. Very eclectic, but one thing that we do know about them, you can go back to the sermon slide, thank you, Lisa. One thing that we do know about these places is they were Hellenized. What does that mean? They were very steeped in Greek culture. Probably most of the people that lived in this place spoke Greek. But one of the most important things we need to see about this particular area is that people usually embraced the Greek religious philosophy, which included Greek mythology, paganism, many gods, uh, a lot of corruption, a lot of immorality that went with their worship. And so for the disciples to go outside of Israel to a region like this had to be in their mind, like, what are we doing? It was one thing to go to the other side of the lake. That was tough enough just to go to Gentile territory still in Israel. But it was quite another thing to go up to Tyre and up to Sidon at this time. And they had to be wondering, why are you taking us to this place? These places are unclean. These people are unclean. I thought you were sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, they might be thinking. But off they went. It wasn't that long of a journey, just, you know, some 20 miles to get into this region, and off they went. It is very interesting when you begin to look at some scripture on Tyre and Sidon, uh, some of the history. There's an oracle written against Tyre in Isaiah 23. It says these words, this, if for your notes, Isaiah 23.1 says, the oracle concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed without house or harbor. It is reported to them from the land of Cyprus. That's Isaiah 23.1. Tyre and Sidon were ancient enemies of Israel. They were corruptors. In fact, they were the, the at their time, you could call them the ancient FedEx or UPS. They had cornered the market on taking goods and so forth and shipping them all around the world. They had a lot of power, a lot of influence. And Tyre and Sidon, because of their locations, corrupted many people. In fact, um, you could call them religious corruptors. Everybody, if you would, turn to 1 Kings. 1 Kings. Let's take Scripture with Scripture and take a look at what this... Uh, places like first kings let's go to chapter 11 first kings 11 it says these words now king solomon first kings 11 verse 1 loved many foreign women first kings 11 1 along with a daughter of pharaoh moabite ammonite edomite and would you note this Sidonian and Hittite women. 1 Kings 11.1, 1, just mark it. That's Sidon right there. That's this area of Tyre and Sidon. And, and this was the undoing in many ways of Solomon because he began to embrace women and whether or not, you know, all of his marriages, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines and you say, oy vey, really? How much counseling did, did this guy need? I mean, anyway, some people say a lot of his marriages were political marriages, but he was involved. In fact, the Bible says he loved these women, so it seems to be more than political, at least with some of them. And here's what Solomon did. 1 Kings 11.5 says, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Many of you know Solomon's story. If you turn over to 1 Kings 16, how Solomon began to try to appease these wives and their religion by setting up high places to their gods. And they would burn incense to these detestable idols. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, the Bible says. Solomon began to do evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And even Solomon, with all his great wisdom, writing the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon, what we call in our Bibles the wisdom literature, the wisest man perhaps that ever lived, save Jesus Christ himself. What did he do? He didn't even follow his own wisdom. You ever look at yourself in the mirror sometimes and say, boy, I knew better. (laughs) It's not like I didn't know. But sometimes, man, my flesh seems so weak. And Tyre was a religious corrupter. If you look at 1 Kings 16, pick up the account in verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, 1 Kings 16, 30, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the, what? Sidonians. Do you know that Jezebel came from this area as well? And she was corrupted by this religious upbringing that she got. And he went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar, verse 32, for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made the Asherah, the Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Would you go, go, keep going towards the New Testament and turn to the book of Ezekiel. Pass up the Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Lamentations, and you'll get to Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. And let's go to chapter 28. Ezekiel 28. A little bit more on the history of these areas. I could do a lot on this, but I just want to show you some of the Old Testament stuff on this. So take a look. It says, Ezekiel 28. Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Ezekiel 28. Thus says, verse 2, Ezekiel 28, 2. Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods, Ezekiel 28, 2. In the heart of the seas, yet you are a man and not God. Although you make your heart like the heart of God, Ezekiel 28, 3. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. This is ironic language. And go down to verse 12. 28, 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. And say to him, thus says the Lord God. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub, verse 14, who covers. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until righteousness was, excuse me, unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as, a profane, as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom, wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Turn back to Mark chapter 7. You may be familiar with the fact that Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, Bible scholars agree. uh, There's at least whole uh, uh, agreement on most scholars' parts that Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 speak on a sub-level of Satan's fall. The king of Tyre is addressed here. And one thing that we need to understand about prophecy is that prophecy often works on many levels. A person, a contemporary of the time may be addressed, but on a sub-level there can be a prophetic scene. It could be something that's happening in the life of the prophet and something that's hundreds of years ahead, like in the case of Jesus fulfilling prophecy. But here, the individual behind the king of Tyre is Lucifer or Satan. He's being addressed as the power behind the king, if you will. And there's no way the king of Tyre is being mentioned here as the covering cherub and the one who was there on the mountain of God and so forth. This language has to be of another being, 
Another being who fell and fell hard. And why did he fall? Because of pride. And it seems that Satan's influence in Tyre and Sidon was very strong. And false religion, when you see uh, people worshiping false gods, you need to know that much of it, if not all of it, is energized by the lies of Satan. If he can get a person to believe that them being religious is sufficient to be okay for whatever, the current life or the life to come, this is how he does most of his effective work in the world. Do you know that at the time that Jesus lived, there were very few atheists, but there were many pagans. There were many people who believed in mythology, but they did not embrace the God of the Bible. And this has been Satan's lie from the beginning, not to deny the existence of God, but to put false gods before people. You must have the right God. You must know who God is and how you get saved, or you can be wrong enough to lose your soul. When people get into debates about theology, which is simply the study of God, you need to know what's at stake. Sometimes people say, ah, leave them alone. Those people are fine in their religion. No, they're not. I interviewed two pastors in India who before they became pastors both told me they were demon-possessed by going to the Hindu temple and burning incense to those so-called gods. This is no laughing matter. Why, pray tell, with this history in mind, if you're one of the apostles, you must be thinking, why are we here? Why have you taken us to this area of the world? that is, in their minds, corrupt. And (laughs) they don't even want to step foot in there. They didn't believe Gentiles could go to heaven. And so Jesus is in this house, Mark 7, 24. I don't know whose house it is, but he's entered into this place. And he wanted no one to know of it, yet, (laughs) Mark 7, 24, he could not escape notice. Have you ever just gone somewhere to get away Maybe you went to another city. Maybe you said, we're going to get out of Dodge, baby. And you go somewhere and you run into people from your own area where you went. Yeah. (laughs) Because wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) I know that's deep, but you'll... (laughs) Anyway... So, yeah, write that down. That's, that's, that's a keeper. Share that with your friends, would you? <laughs> Mark seven twenty five. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. Remember, there was the debate about what makes a person clean and unclean. Here is the mention of an unclean spirit. What makes a spirit unclean? The same thing that makes people unclean. Evil. Sin. A third of the angels fell to what? To sin. They rebelled against God. So here's an unclean spirit, a demonic spirit. Immediately came, this is a woman whose daughter had the unclean spirit, immediately came and fell at his feet. So Jesus is located in this house. I don't know if the woman came into the house. Um, She may have, or if this is happening outside, but she falls at his feet. She's located him. She's heard of him. She's had a burden on her heart. I don't know how long it's been happening, but her daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. In Mark 9, when we get there, we'll read of a father who approaches Jesus about his son. The son is cruelly demon-possessed, and the demon causes the son to fall into fires and into water. Many uh, experts in this realm say that the goal of satanic... um, Possession and manipulation is to mar the image of God in an individual. How did a little daughter get an unclean spirit in her? We must ask the question. Probably because mom was dabbling with the religion of Tyre. And you know, we've heard these stories where seances and and things are held within homes and all of a sudden there's weird things that begin to happen. I have a book on my shelf, if you're interested in these stories, that has several stories about people who dabbled, quote-unquote, in this stuff. And I tell you what, it got frighteningly real. There are many people who think this is a joke, but it's no joke. And it seems like in these stories that we run into in the, the gospel time and time again, 
We see people with these unclean spirits. I hope you have, still have a place in Matthew. Matthew 15, look at verse 22. It says, Behold, look, the camera pans to her. That's what this word means. Take a look, focus. Matthew 15, 22. Behold, a Canaanite woman. So now she's identified with the uh, area of Canaan, which is the area that Israel eventually took over because those people were so fin- sinful. A Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Help me, Lord. She cried out to him, O Lord, help me. She asked for help. Matthew 15, 25. Uh, Skip up there. 15, 25. She came and began to bow down before him, saying, Have you ever been here before? Three simple words. Matthew 15, 25. Lord, help me. Every day. Good answer. Lord, I haven't even gotten out of bed yet. Help! Lord, help me. Do you know what's interesting about this story is that Jesus goes into this region and leaves and there is no record that he ministered to any other person except her. Nothing in both accounts. He goes, he delivers the daughter, and he leaves. And you have to be asking the question, knowing the heart of Jesus as we do. He had to go through Samaria to the Samaritan woman at the well. It was unthinkable that he would even address her or speak to her. Why does he do this? Because he hears crying hearts. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've gotten yourself involved in, and no matter what consequences have come your way because of it, three simple words, oh Lord, help me, is enough. And I believe that Jesus went to this region solely for this Gentile woman. That, my friends, is mind-blowing. Sometimes we think, oh, if one person, only one person responded to the gospel at some event, well, shoot, that's a disappointment, is it? God's willing, you know, when one person comes to repentance, the Bible says the angels, what? Rejoice in heaven. How about us? How about us when one person turns to the Lord? And she cried out. She bowed down. Mark 7, 25. She came. She fell at his feet. She bowed down. Matthew 15, 25. These are words of worship. Every knee will... Bow. Every tongue will confess. The word, the idea of bowing down is an act of humility. She did what the religious leaders would not do. They encircled him and accused him. She bowed down. They wouldn't say, Lord, help me. They wouldn't admit they needed help. She would. Let me ask you, which person ended up being helped and which person ended up being rejected in the end? You see, the whole point of this passage and where it falls in our Bible is you think you know who's clean and unclean before God, you've got it wrong. Don't judge a book by its cover. All these biases that had streamed into the thinking of Israel because of the traditions of the elders had messed so many people up. And here's Christ's power to heal. Mark 7, 26, Now the woman was a Gentile, Some versions may say she was a Greek. That just simply means she was a non-Jew of the Syrophoenician race. So that's just a combination of Phoenicia, which is the Tyre and Sidon area, with Syria. It was the Syrian province of Rome. Rome, When Rome captured areas, they called it provinces. And so this area of Phoenicia with Tyre and Sidon was simply known as the Syrian province. So she's a Syrophoenician woman. She's of that race. And she kept asking to cast the demon out of her daughter. She kept asking, Lord, please deliver my daughter. She's cruelly demon-possessed. Lord, please deliver my daughter. I don't know how many times she said it, but she kept asking, she kept asking, she kept asking. She was pure Gentile. She may have spoken Greek. I don't know what the uh, disciples were thinking, but they had to be thinking, man, We don't even want to be near this woman. Why is she here? 
Matthew 15, 23, if you want to peek back there, I want you to see the response of the very spiritual disciples. Matthew 15, 23 says, But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came to him and kept asking him, saying, Send her away! She's shouting out after us! Translation, Lord, get rid of her! Lord, would you please cast the demon out of my child? Lord, get rid of her! Both are in the, they kept doing it. So it began, began to be a concert. It began to be these two debating voices. Can you imagine just a day in the life of Jesus? It's a wonder that he stayed the way he did. Lord, get rid of her. Lord, cast out the demon of my child. Lord, get rid of her. She keeps shouting after us. Lord, cast out the demon out of my child. Back and forth, up and down. I might have just wiped out the whole region if I was God right there. <laughs> Sick of you people. Would you have been annoyed? <laughs> Send her away. We don't want her here. Maybe they were, if we give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe they were thinking, Lord, just, just say the word so she'll go away. There are some scholars that believe that they're eating a meal when she comes, if she entered into the house. Maybe they're in the middle of a meal. Can we, didn't, we came here to get away from it all. Can, is there anywhere you can go where people don't know who you are? In Mark 3, I think it's verse 8, you may be wondering, well, how did people hear about Jesus in this region? Well, people, people had come from Tyre and Sidon and met him in Israel. It wasn't that far away. And so his fame had spread. And Jesus was silent to her cries. She kept begging. She kept asking. She kept inquiring after him. And notice what happens. She was of the Syrophoenician race, and uh, Matthew's account says he didn't answer anything. He was silent. Was the silence indifference? Did he just ignore her? Was he being cold to her? I don't think so. I think Jesus was trying to bring out faith, but I think it was more than just about her faith. It was about the disciples that were watching, and it's about us right now. What does it take for us to give up in prayer? What do we, what do we perceive about other people? Who's, who's really worthy of our time? Who do we think should become a Christian? And those people, well, it doesn't matter much to us. Are we willing to go to a woman like this and hear her cries? And she kept crying out. In Matthew 15, 24, Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But was he? I think that was his primary mission. I think Romans 1.16 makes it clear for the Jew first and also then what? For the Gentile. Jesus was sent primarily to the lost sheep of Israel. But listen to those words. He is concerned about who? Lost sheep. We're going to come to the end of this message and when we look at this message, we're going to see that there's a mention of the little dogs, the little puppies. and Some people might be thinking, how dare we be compared to dogs? Puppies. Have you ever had a moment where it doesn't seem like a bad deal to be a dog? <laughs> Amen? Small brain, maybe? Don't worry about much. Lay around. Bark. <laughs> but isn't that a whole mystery about what they're doing when they bark? There's a comedian... <laughs> He said, I don't get the whole dog barking thing. It'd be interesting to get interpretation of it. But he said, could you imagine if you moved into a new neighborhood and you went out on your porch and you just started yelling about two in the morning, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> Wouldn't take long until a shotgun was probably heard <laughs> in the distance. And he was saying to her, verse 27, Mark 7, 
Let the children be satisfied. Many commentators believe the children here is either the apostles, perhaps at a meal table, or the children is often a description of Israel. And he says, notice Jesus responds to her now after some time of silence. Let the children be satisfied. What's your Bible say? First, or let them have NIV all they want. This is not a hopeless situation, but he says there's an order here. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Hmm. He answered and said, Matthew 15, 26, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the puppies or the dogs. R. Kent Hughes comments. He says, there's no way we can hear the tone and cadence of Jesus' voice or see the sparkle in his eyes or his playful smile. But I believe it was all there. And this Gentile woman, she knew Jewish thinking. She knew that many of the Jewish people considered Gentiles dogs. But when they thought of dogs, they were thinking of the scavenger dogs. Back in the day, a lot of dogs were not domesticated. So they ran in packs and they fed on garbage and they were a menace to society. Some people had domesticated dogs, but it wasn't always the case. When Jesus used the word for dogs here, it's kunarion in Greek. It's the word for not the scavenger dog, but for a little pet dog. A little puppy dog, if you will, under the table, just waiting for some crumbs. This was not an insult to the woman. In fact, Jesus is making a point about the gospel going to the Gentiles. And Peter, who is there at this meal, is the man who is going to have to break through that threshold. You see, when Jesus was doing stuff, you guys, he was doing it on many levels for many different reasons. He was teaching Peter something. He was teaching the apostles something. And it would be Peter in Acts 15 at the council at Jerusalem who stands up when it's being debated whether Gentiles need to keep the food laws and be circumcised. And Peter says, look, God made a choice among us. You read Acts 15 later, that through my mouth the Gentiles might be saved. And Peter says, look, they were saved by grace in the same way that we are. Why do you want to put on their back or their neck things that we couldn't even do? As Jews, it is part of Peter's faith shaping that these things are happening. You see, Jesus had these guys in school. Three, three and a half years of the best seminary you could ever imagine. People say they were untaught. I think not. They had the best teacher that ever existed or will ever exist. And Jesus is doing this to show the heart of God for the Jew and for the Gentiles. Matthew 12, 21 says, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And if you're not a Jew here this morning, you're a Gentile. And the gospel has come to us by God's grace. And so Jesus gives these words. It might seem a little harsh. He says, let the children be satisfied first, key word, where it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. He's saying, Lord, I understand what you're saying, but I'll take the crumbs. And when she said that, and you start thinking about the position of the story, the feeding of the 5,000, the picking up the, of the 12 full baskets, the bread of life, Jesus Christ, and you begin to meet a person who says, Lord, I'll be satisfied with just crumbs. What if you and I took that posture with God? We often come to God and we say, Lord, here's my calendar today just to update you on current events. <laughs> here's where I'll be going today. I may take a few moments to pray or read my Bible, perhaps if someone sends me one of those devotional verses. But... uh if you can get with the program, what? You see, this woman is saying, Lord, I'll take crumbs. I'll take a doggy bag. I'll take your doggy bag. Just give me the crumbs. If you were a disciple in the middle of a bite, what would you think? Send her away! Send her away! 
Just give me the... Have you ever had one of those moments where someone just humbled you? <laughs> put you in your place? Here you are, barking orders, pun intended. Barking orders. She's annoying us! Get her out of here! It's almost as if she positions herself under the table and says, if anything falls, I'll take it. Wow. See, I think the woman understood this was a test. A test of faith. And her answer is priceless. Listen to Spurgeon. He says, quote, Our Lord has a very quick eye for spying faith. The Lord Jesus was charmed with the fair jewel of this woman's faith. And watching it and delighting in it, he resolved to turn it around and set it in other lights. That the various facets of the, this priceless diamond might each one flash its brilliance and delight his soul. She said, Matthew 15, 27, Yes, but the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Is she calling, George, is she calling the Lord her master? She called him Lord. She called him Master. I think she's saying, Lord, I'll take the crumbs that fall from the table. If they don't want it, I'll take it. She was basically saying, Lord, I recognize the fact that I'm just a poor outcast Gentile, but give me some of the crumbs of the children of the kingdom, the ones they are refusing. Allow me to take the place of the puppy under the table and so obtain mercy at thy hand from H.A. Ironside. Her response was exactly what Jesus was looking for. And it's what he wants out of us. Isaiah 57, 15, write this down, says, Thus says the Holy One, the High and Exalted One who lives forever, whose name is holy, Isaiah 57, 15, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In Matthew 15, 28, Jesus responds and says, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done to you as you wish. In Mark 7, 29, it says, He said to her, Because of this answer, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. He didn't even have to be there. He didn't even have to touch her. Just say the word. Do you remember the centurion who came to him earlier? And he said, I haven't seen such great faith in Israel. He says, I'm a man of authority and people do what I say and, and I don't want you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And at that very hour, the servant was healed. And at that very hour, I am sure the girl was delivered. Can you imagine what a mess she was? Can you imagine the nightmares and the, the challenges that this mom went through as she cried day and night for some sort of solution and she went home to a daughter delivered by the power of Jesus Christ? How many times do you think that story was retold in that household? How many people do you think were transformed by the witness in Tyre and Sidon by this single uh, Gentile woman who had the Lord show up and meet her in her greatest time of need. Oh, woman, your faith is great. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back home, Mark 7, verse 30, going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having departed. How does darkness flee in our lives? Faith and humility. I'm going to say that one more time. If you want darkness to flee from your life, it takes two things, faith and humility. Humble yourself under his mighty hand and he will exalt you at the proper time. I close with these words. You see, this woman's faith is what the disciples should be and what ours should be. Lord, if you say I'm a little dog, I'm good with it. Just as long as I have a master like you. Amen? One thing I've noticed about my dog is that she will always eagerly and patiently wait for the crumbs. It doesn't matter how long it takes. And I have noticed that she freezes in certain positions. <laughs> have you noticed this with dogs? Their focus is absolutely amazing. If I'm cutting something or there's a piece of meat there, just, just, 
and she will not move. And it's almost like this. You get the tail wagging. If I could put words in my dog's mouth, it's something like this. I know something good is coming. I know something good's coming. I know he's soft. I know I've won him over. I know it's coming. Yeah. But it doesn't just end there. Because you know what happens? It's not just one thing. I know something's good is coming. <laughs> is that in your vocabulary? How many of you woke up this morning and said, I know something good's coming. Now you're disappointed. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what if you woke up tomorrow like that? What if you said, I have a master. The same Jesus that did this for this woman is my Lord. What if you woke up on Tuesday like that and Wednesday like that? And instead of seeing God as someone who's ready to club you over the head, you saw God as the one who is actually for you and not against you. He loved you so much, he gave his son. So the attitude, oh boy, I know something good is about to drop from the master's table. Just give me the crumbs is a cool image, but you know what? That's not what God has done. He hasn't just given us the crumbs. He's made us co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches that everything that Christ has, we're going to share in one day. In fact, the Bible even says we're going to sit on his throne. He'll, maybe we'll each get a turn. I don't know what that's going to be like. Everything that he has is yours if you are in Christ. It's not just the crumbs. We have the bread of life. Amen? So be of good cheer, saints. No matter what's coming at you, he loves you. Father, we thank you for this section of scripture. So hopeful, so wonderful, so encouraging. And we need it, Lord. It's challenging to our faith as well. It's challenging to our attitude, our biases, our prejudices. Forgive us, Lord, for those things that can exist in our hearts you demonstrated so much by your actions. Your actions spoke about the heart of God. And I pray that that heart will be in us. If you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior with your head and heart bowed, it's time to meet him. You're not gonna meet anybody like him. No one can provide what he provides. You don't come to him just for that. You come to him because he made you and he loves you and life will only make sense until you know your creator. And so if it's you and you want to meet him as your master and Lord, it's something like this. Pray it out loud and settle it today. Jesus, come into my life. Thank you that you died on the cross for my sins. Thank you that you rose to defeat death. Thank you for your compassion for the lost. I want to trust you as my Lord and my Savior. Help me to follow you Create in me a new and clean heart, Lord. Father, for those who are crying out in their hearts, may you bless them. For those who may listen to this later, may you bring them to yourself. And for the church that's here, may we be encouraged and reinvigorated in our lives in service of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?